We were a handful of battalions at war, led by an even smaller group of officers, and I include myself here, silly and naive enough to think that winning was a legitimate option, or that it mattered in the least. The important thing, as it turned out, was not winning or losing, but simply putting the best face possible on something that is, by definition, unpleasant. War. There were countless days when it seemed as though I had tumbled down the rabbit hole, and not merely because of the inherent lunacy and inhumanity of combat. What I found most bothersome and frustrating were the days when there seemed to be no coherent objective, when all that really mattered was whether we were winning the propaganda war. And by the way, we lost that one too. Whether we were delivering money to a local hospital or clinic or handing out soccer balls to wide-eyed Iraqi schoolchildren, as long as we looked generous and efficient on a daytime patrol, it meant that all was right with the world. Looking good was tantamount to doing good. But that was all very much surface stuff, winning hearts and minds and that sort of thing. It had little or nothing to do with the root of the mission, or at least the mission as I saw it. The real mission was this, secure and stabilize the region. Almost comical in its simplicity and abstraction, this directive, as we soon discovered, actually involved a great deal of complicated, messy, and dangerous work. It involved the risking of our own lives and the taking of others. It involved the primal and bloody toil of combat, an experience that forever changes and scars anyone who has been through it. I was a soldier made, not born. While the tradition of military service is deeply rooted in some families, it was little more than white noise in my early life. Three of my uncles on my mother's side and one uncle on my father's side of the family had served in the army. One in World War II, one in Korea, one in peacetime, and one in Vietnam. Their war stories were offered only grudgingly, and I have no recollection of sitting at their feet, taking in with wide-eyed innocence everything they said. It was just something they had done once, a long time ago, and was no more or less important or interesting than the jobs they held now or the families they raised. It would be many years later, when I entered West Point, before I began to understand the depth of commitment that runs through some families and how many of my classmates were third- and fourth-generation cadets. There was a time, when I worked in the West Point admissions office, that I received a call from a gentleman by the name of Westmoreland. I didn't think it was the General Westmoreland, but it was definitely one of his relatives, a brother or son perhaps, and he wasted little time in letting me know that his daughter was applying to West Point and that the Westmoreland line at the academy could be traced back, unbroken, to 1827. So the message was clear. Just go ahead and get her in, because this is where she belongs. The Ivies, I learned, had nothing on West Point when it came to tradition and legacy. If our household lacked any overt connection to the military, however, it didn't want for structure and guidance. My parents both grew up in Pennsylvania and met as students at Roberts Wesleyan, a small Christian college located near Rochester, New York. My dad, Marcus Bailey Sassaman, entered Western Evangelical Seminary in Portland, Oregon, and eventually he and my mother, Nancy Jean Sassaman, settled in the Northwest and began raising a family. My father was a free Methodist minister, and his vocation was the family business, so to speak. Mom and Dad subscribed wholeheartedly to the precepts of Samuel and Susanna Wesley in matters both personal and theological, so ours was a conservative upbringing, to say the least. 
There is a line of scripture that says, in essence, if a pastor can't control his own home, then he has no business being in charge of a church and a congregation. My parents were young, and I was the firstborn, and as a result, I suffered the consequences of their taking that advice rather literally. They didn't spare the rod, and I can recall taking it in the shorts quite a bit early on. I can also remember as early as first grade, sitting in the front row of my father's church, trying desperately to remain still as a statue for the duration of the entire service. No small task for a six-year-old, especially one as energetic as I was, but I understood what would happen if I succumbed to the urge to twitch or even itch. Mom was at the piano, Dad was in the pulpit, and the entire church was watching. If I caused them any embarrassment, someone would take me out afterward and administer a little parental discipline, usually a shoe or belt across the backside. There was